0: Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network your faithful, humble American Muslim Patriot Correspondent. And thank you for joining me in a program that I've always seen as part of a movement, a humble movement that of, includes rational Americans who care about their country first, who care about U.S. Constitution, our freedoms, and the preservation of American security. And especially as a Muslim, somebody who's willing to call a spade a spade and face the radicalism, the root causes of those issues. And I've taken that platform and often broadened it to the things that make me who I am, whether it's in the practice of medicine or across other fronts in my life, whether it was in the military as a medical officer for 11 years, or things that led to the writing of my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, and my faith and in my life as a husband, as a father, and as an American. This week, we are commemorating another anniversary of 9-11. 21 years after 9-11, our country bows our head to remember and never forget, never forget the attack of radical Islamists and what they've done, what they did to our country through Al-Qaeda, and remember the fact that it was but a series of attacks that were in a war that has been declared on us from even before by radical Islamists, beginning perhaps, you could say, in 1979 with the hostage crisis, and also on a number of fronts with the attack of the USS Cole, and then with a number of attacks, including 7-7 in Britain in 2005, Charlie Hebdo attacks almost 10 years later in France, and so many, so many other fronts. And all of that history aside, you still see, you still see the media as if somehow Muslims are the victims. And I love my faith, and listen, there's certainly a a, a lot to learn about what the best reaction to diversity and various faith communities should be, but I'm not sure that the lesson of a faith of a quarter of the world's population, most of whom live under dictatorship or theocracy, monarchies, military dictatorships or otherwise, is that somehow the practitioners of Islam are the victims. And one of the things of clarity I've sought to talk about on this program is what is victimization? Who is the victim? What is the faith of Islam, what is Islamophobia, what is bigotry against Muslims, what is not bigotry, how overestimating or underestimating Muslims, radicals or moderates or reformers, whichever stripe they may be, has within it either possibly some veiled bigotry or simply a dehumanization that somehow we don't expect as much from them. And even, I I don't know what's become of the Drudge Report recently, but for example, they had on the face over the fold on their website, which I still think, uh, as last I checked, gets a a significant number of clicks. I'm not sure what their political leaning is anymore, but bottom line is is this piece written by Shireen Ali and Sirakshi Rai on September 11, 2022, said Muslim Americans see their political clout grow 20 years after 9/11, a record 81 Muslim American candidates ran for office in 2020 across 28 states and Washington D.C. And then it starts with the story saying that following 9/11 anti-Muslim sentiment grew in the United States. From 20 from 2000 to 2009, hate crimes against Muslims spiked 500% Muslim Americans coalesced, and in 2020, out of 1.5 million registered to vote, 71 million cast 71 percent cast a ballot. Then it goes on to talk, and this is like the Newsweek article I talked to you last year that I was interviewed in, and and yet my quotations were not about what I actually talked to Mr. Freese, the uh, uh, reporter about about how. We're discriminated less in this country than we are in any other any other country in the planet, especially Muslim majority nations. It was not about the fact that the more Muslims running with political clout was actually a sign of less discrimination, not more. And for those trying to paint the narrative that somehow it was because of the discrimination, then how is it they're getting elected? How is it they're winning primaries? How is it they are not finding a plethora of quotations from major media that somehow demonstrates bigotry. But actually the attempts of the Islamist groups, the alphabet soup of Muslim Brotherhood apologists and legacy groups in the West, to paint us as victims actually scratches their head for for a long time until they find even a modicum of something that appears to be discriminatory or bigoted. And in fact, these candidates are running on platforms in which they are, as we saw with one of the governors, I think his name is El Sayyid, that ran in in the governor's primary in the Democratic Party in 2020, he was actually shouting at Michigan voters, telling them that they should not be asking him about Sharia, Islamic law, they should not be asking him about loyalty, about priorities and his values and how faith was going to play a role. No, no. It's okay to ask a Catholic like Biden or others about that. It's okay to to even bring it up for others, but for Muslims, it's a sign of bigotry. Never mind the war globally and the security apparatus that is at threat because of jihadism and its asynchronous viral warfare. Now, this piece on Drudge, and I'm going to talk to you in a little bit about the statistics about that you will find just fascinating, recently published by an Islamist sympathetic group here in America, but yet they couldn't get past the fact that Muslims were almost the second most common faith group to think negatively about Muslim ideology and its propensity for violence, etc. Why is that? <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit back to the piece on political power coming from changing america website published at the hill while Zayat, ceo of mgage emgage a muslim american civic group personally i see them as an islamist arm of a political theocratic viral movement of a, a neo Muslim Brotherhood-type group, but anyway, he explained to Changing America that Muslim Americans could have stayed silent in the aftermath of 9-11 as a way to defend their interests and their freedoms because of hostile rhetoric. But eventually, al Zayat said, the community warmed to a more affirmative agenda, engaging in political discourse and becoming an active voter block in the U.S. election. Oh, really? And who, what, is that, what is that ridiculous comment evidenced by? The two candidates in Congress are some of the most blithering, loud, irrational idiots in Congress. Ilhan Omar has wanted to create basically a a caliphate in the State Department that calls for an Islamophobia chair, anti-Islamophobia seat that basically is going to try to filter speech domestically and globally. And thankfully it hasn't gone anywhere in the House and the Senate. I mean, it is, it is beyond incredulous that somehow they're spinning this and the activity of those who've gotten elected as somehow being a positive. A positive. Rashida Tlaib, the other one from Dearborn, basically has repeatedly, not only, forget her, her street type of, of language using often uh, um, absurdly, Offensive speech, but uh, she has defended the BDS movement. Uh, She has uh, basically represented a platforming of some of the most radical Palestinian anti Semitic ideas of the Arab American population. Now, Is she an Islamist? She certainly has had as advisors to her folks that have been sympathetic to Hezbollah and and Hamas and others. So she may be a secular, uh, minimally religious uh, Muslim, but at the end of the day, the people she surrounds herself, no different than the Palestinian movement itself, whether it's Arafat surrounding himself with Hamas, even though he's part of Fatah, and uh, Abbas now, um, part of Fatah, leading Fatah, and his fealty sometimes, or sometimes conflict with Hamas, but bottom line is, is they share their animus for Israel, their animus for, and their bigotry for Jews, and their anti-Semitism. And the radicalism of these in the squad, quote-unquote, has been unparalleled with no accountability to those things. Things they've said would never have been said by non-Muslims or tolerated by anyone except Muslims who have a threshold of being allowed to say things nobody else can against Jews, against Americans, against our country, because they're Muslims. Never mind their Islamism, their political Islamist mindset. So engage as much as they might be supposedly moderate and not Islamist. It's what they don't say. If you really want credibility in American politics, then be honest about what your ideas are. Be open about them. Don't Take as your constituency every Muslim. Just as your constituency should never be pigeonholed by a collective faith group. It's about what is right and wrong, what is ethical and moral, what is best for America and our principles and our constitutional rights. The piece goes on and says a record 81 Muslim American candidates ran for office across 28 states. But these milestones have been accompanied by a growing rise in Islamophobic incidents. Data from Brown University revealed that 2000-2009, the hate crime spiked. A Pew Research survey found Republicans increasingly associated Muslims and Islam with violence. Among 72% of Republicans believing Islam was more likely than other religions to encourage violence. Among Democrats, 34%. Then the piece goes on, talking about the new mayor in Dearborn. And how Ilhan Omar played a tape, a voicemail that she received calling her a POS. Hell-bent on taking over our country and all the attacks, constantly being the victim. And I have to tell you, you know, this thing, how far are they going to take this forever? This is what the left does, is it takes identity politics, whether it be your sexuality, your race, your faith, it takes identity politics and turns on its head every other rational aspect of discourse as far as debate of what is, except when it comes to Christians, right? They will... Uh, feel that January 6th is a source, a demonstration of the root that 70 million plus Americans are radicals, are terrorists, and are insurrectionists. But when it comes to Islam and a quarter of the world's population of 1.8 billion people, God forbid we talk about the reality that there's 500 to 800 million that might be devotees of political Islam and Islamism which is a supremacist idea whether you believe in terrorism as a tactic or not. So when you talk about when you talk about what the reality is, sure. I'm all for American Muslims being part of the political fabric and beginning to speak out, but for crying out loud, hold them accountable. Ask them the tough questions and don't be embarrassed about it. No, every other candidate needs to have exaggerated, re- repetitive comments they made on a podcast somewhere or whatever it is, repeated in commercials. But when it comes to Muslims running, no, it's it, it, it doesn't seem to be fair. Especially those Muslims on the left. On the right, sometimes they get a little bit tougher eval, but that's usually by Democrats, not from within the party. Or if it is from within the party, it seems to be... Sometimes uh, not necessarily guided at ideology or, or necessarily finding out whether what their position is on political Islam, but simply gotchas. And I'll let you fill in the gaps. We can talk specifically about other campaigns in the future. But let's look at this study I was mentioning to you that came out in the past few weeks The Institute of Policy, Social Policy and Understanding, in the end of August, indicated that American Muslims are more likely to agree with Islamophobic tropes, particularly those regarding anti-Americanism, propensity to violence, and the level of civilization on the part of Muslims. The upshot of the report is that American Muslims are more likely to think poorly of their core religionists than the general public in the U.S., and that these beliefs have become more pronounced in recent years. Further, according to the report, 24% of American Muslims believe that their core religionists are more prone to violence than non-Muslims, while only 9% of the general public believes this to be true. Oh, so, so Muslims, according to this study... Because they take this to be consistent with Islamophobia. So if you're critical of Muslims, by the way, being Muslim is not a race. It's an ideology. So if you adhere to the Muslim ideology, then you must be an Islamophobe. And 9% of Americans are worried about that. But among Muslims, it's 27. So it's three times higher. So therefore, Muslims must be Islamophobe bigots. 19% of American Muslims surveyed believe that most Muslims in the United States are anti-American while only 8% of the general public believes this to be true and while just almost 1 in 5 American Muslims believe that their core religionists are less civilized than other only about 1 in 20 or 6% of the general public believes this 18% of American Muslims believe that Muslims are partially responsible for terrorism perpetrated by their core religionists. Well, only 6% of the general public believe so. When the responses to five individual statements regarding Muslims are combined to create a composite score, only two groups, white evangelicals and Catholics are more Islamophobic than Muslims themselves, according to this so-called study. And I say so-called because sounds like they got some genuine data, but they're trying to target Catholics and evangelicals through the preconceived notion of who hates Muslims. And oops, by the way, they proved that Muslims hate Muslims. And I, I am repulsed by the use of the term hate. This is not about hate. This is not about phobia or bigotry. What is the reality The reality, the reality to me, as somebody who loves my faith, loves my country, is that so much of this report proves, in some ways, what many of us in the Muslim Reform Movement have been dedicated to, which is that any honest Muslim who loves his faith realizes that not only with terrorism, But all of the other maladies of our diverse communities within the Muslim communities, be it tribalism, ignorance, lack of faith, misogyny, racism, human rights abuses, crimes against humanity, it starts and ends with Muslim ideologies and pathologies, Arabist ideologies, uh, 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 nationalist fascist ideologies. So a mixture of the cauldrons of which we came from and our families came from, be it from Syria, Iraq, Libya, Tunisia, Pakistan, Iran, whatever it might be. Those cauldrons did not then disappear upon our families coming here, but either we accepted that we needed to discard the bad and absorb the good in the West, which relates to individual rights and autonomy, or we need to basically begin to realize, and and many of us do, that, wait a minute, we own our own condition. I've talked to so many Muslims that, yes, especially those of us in the Syrian-American community wanted nothing more than for Syrians to have a safe refuge away from the chemical weapons and the attacks of the Assad regime and ISIS in addition. They wanted their families to be safe. And we're thankful and, and, and thanked God And humanity for the open arms that countries like Europe and others showed. Countries in Europe and America and so many showed. But they understood when they said, you know what, we can't take in all of these. Set aside the economic issues of it. The reality is that there were statistics that weren't just statistics. We knew more than anybody that while 80 plus percent were God-fearing, humble Beautiful human beings 10-20% to 20% had either sympathies For ISIS or radicalism Or, or either were Esedists Or, or non-Esedists That were also military type ter- Believed in fascism And socialism and other things That were incompatible With being an American Incompatible with being German Or French Or Belgian Or whatever country They were trying to go to So the reality is Is that Maybe Muslims know better than others Maybe that's not Islamophobia. Maybe that's a reality of the hard work that we have yet ahead. Maybe one of the reasons that the Arab Awakening has not been working, working since 2011 is that these societies are so so devoid of infrastructure, of civil society, of education, and other things that it's going to take a few year a few generations of revolutions before they actually end up. Westernizing, modernizing, going through an enlightenment to actually reveal the realities of what many of our families have been able to do here in the West with a more modernized Islam that has jettisoned the Islamist theocracy of so many of the Islamic establishment and maintained that personal pietistic Islam that is humble and God-fearing and moral. Now, the Islamists and those obsessed with identity politics are still even with this data, trying to twist the data into their own preconceived obsession of blaming everything on the West and non-Muslims as they have with attempts at somehow saying that, well, Muslims must be Islamophobic because they're internalizing what's happening. They are basically becoming self-haters because they've been living... In this culture. Or they're becoming white Muslims. Yeah, yeah, that's what it said, white Muslims. But not only does such a correlation have nothing to do with causation, the reality is obvious. How can you deny that Islamism, political Islam, and Islamic theocracy in which the law comes from their interpretation of Islam and thus demonizes Dissenters demonizes other faiths. Islamic dem- Islamist demagogues have radicalized the consciousness of masses of Muslims across the planet. And their tribalism is only part of that. And it's been fueled by Arabist and other racial movements that the Arab awakening tried to begin to correct, only to be filled by Islamist movements and anarchy. So as we sit here in the belly of freedom, and we see what... Disasters and anarchy happened even in Tunisia, which was so appeared to be moving towards its republic and democracy after the Islamists were defeated. Now, has uh, ticked back with the current president now basically dissolving the parliament and going back into some type of military dictatorship. So this study essentially proves, ladies and gentlemen, that what we always knew in the Muslim reform movement, that our work begins and ends against the Islamist establishment and as well as the secular fascists ruling Muslim majority nations of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation or the Neo-Caliphate of today. Because that's what's controlling a lot of the Muslim consciousness in the planet. That's what drives the anti-Americanism and the radicalization. And so we realize better than anybody, those who are honest. So those percentages, I think, have to do not with negative tropes, as the Institute tried to convince us, but it had to do with the reality that, yeah, you know, let's be honest. We love our faith, but the worst... The worst representatives of it sometimes are Muslims. Has nothing to do with anti-Muslim bigotry. Any other conclusions, trying to blame non-Muslims for our own conditions is simply dissimulation. Identity, politics and propaganda. What do I mean by dissimulation? I mean just sort of trying to say one thing to one group and really knowing in your heart something different. So look out for this study and look out for its red flags about how things are interpreted because everything's interpreted based on the lens through which you look at it. And, uh, you know, listen, if you're going to interpret things about America and its position, generally speaking, about those who may carry foreign ideas or faiths, whatever that means, America was based on religious freedom, its first liberty. But let's say you want that premise At the end of the day, you should be asking them all the same question. What is their belief about loyalty to America? Do they want to make it an Islamic state? Is it about countering political Islam and its ideology? Where do they stand? Have they been articulate about positions regarding Muslim Brotherhood movements, the Khomeinist movements of the Shia, the Islamist movements of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Sunni? from Jama'at, Islami in Pakistan and on, etc., etc., that we've talked about so many times here. What are their positions? So that's the lens, I think, through which every American can look when we talk about, let's say when, we, when you're looking at non-faith-related politics, capitalism, free markets, we look at ideas on socialism. You say, oh, how socialist is this person? And as as well as Bernie Sanders did, the reality is, is I think most people realize that a socialist, for a lot of the historic reasons in America, could never be elected president of the United States. At least in today's demographics, contrary to what the far-left progressivists are trying to do to our country. But at least at this point, they couldn't be. So the idea of socialism is relevant. So when it comes to Americanism and its idea of religious freedom, political Islam is a relevant barometer by which to measure those who are running for office and the position of Muslims in America and their ideas and whether or not those ideas are a threat. Last, there's an interesting article over at the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, the New Yorker. About... Muslim college students getting secret marriages. And take a look at that. I think the piece has a lot to learn from it. And I, as we've been trying, it's amazing to me now, 21 years after 9-11, finally some of the media are starting to look at some of the social issues. Now even with that, the folks they interviewed in the piece were far too soft on what's happening. Far too circumspect about the reality of what is actually transpiring in the root cause analysis. And then it ends with just a a, a money quote, if you will, from, by the way, from Dalia Mujahid, who is one of the primary authors and publishers of that study that I mentioned to you at the Institute on Social Policy. Piece that the New Yorker opens and says in July, Adil Zeb, the Muslim chaplain for Claremont Colleges near Los Angeles, posted on Facebook about something that was bothering him. I've been approached by multiple Muslim couples recently to perform or lead their secret nikah. Nikah has a secret Islamic traditional marriage. He wrote. These students told him that they had fallen into sin or haram in Arabic, by having sex outside of marriage, which is prohibited by Islam. They wanted to get right with God by getting married, but they wanted to do so without telling their parents. Zeb described their thinking in the short term, I can exercise my passion and in the long term, I won't go to hell. Each of the couple said that they wanted to have a bigger wedding later and family involved, but for now, just sweeping it under the rug, Uh, Their parents were the roadblock to the relationship. So in one case, Zeb offered to intervene and talk to one of the fathers, but the couple were reluctant. So he refused to take any part in He said, I'm writing this message to warn young people against these secret marriages and any leader who will arrange the wedding without their respective families being notified, he wrote on the Facebook And just for information, the elements of traditional Islamic marriage ceremony are fairly straightforward. The bride and the groom need to agree to the marriage. Two witnesses must be present on each side, so four in total. And the groom has to give the bride a gift. Money, whatever it might be. For example, in most cases, the bride also needs a male guardian to be there. Now we're starting to get, this is actually the reality. The bottom line, though, is that it's a bit misogynistic. But this is the sharia of today. The bride also needs a male guardian to be there, typically her dad. Technically, a couple doesn't even need an officiant, although many might ask an imam to oversee the ceremony. And yet, according to Islamic scholars, the Prophet taught that marriage is supposed to be public. Communal weddings follow both the spirit and the letter of the law. This expectation was reflected in Zeb's post. Parents and families should be fully involved, and marriage can't just be a spiritual cover for having sex. And then after his post, there was a flurry of discussion among friends and others, and this is the type of debate we needed in the communities. And I have to tell you, as an ethicist, and as a Muslim and and reformer and other things that we're doing, this topic touches on many things. We live in the Muslim community in this honor culture, an honor culture that excuses things as horrific as female genital mutilation, all the way to honor violence, honor killings for, uh, that we've I've talked to you on this program before against women that might date publicly, that might end up uh, with child, pregnant, and, and their parents don't want to deal with it and or be embarrassed, so they kill them. The brothers do, the uncles, the fathers. We saw that with the Iraqi father here who killed his daughter in 2007 in Phoenix. In so many other cases, we see it with female genital mutilation, etc. So the honor culture thus creates this sort of bizarre pathological response in which kids want to be faithful, they don't want to disappoint God, but they're also afraid of their parents. So as we saw with every culture in history, Until reform goes public, until there's actual public revolutions, there are loopholes that are attempted. And that lack of openness and dishonesty and concealment creates more pathology, layers over other layers of pathology. So secret marriages then... Remember, there's, for example, you can go in the Iranian supreme council community of the islamists of iran and their fascistic islamo-fascist regime they'll have hotels where it's basically houses of prostitution but what happens is in order to get the room you get married and then upon leaving you get divorced so somehow that is a marital institution it's in the shia tradition to their clerics it's called now again this isn't all Shia. this is the radical she is but bottom line is is it's peculiar to that tradition and it is a mitah a, a marriage of convenience and even there's a supposed tradition of the prophet that they say which i do not believe is real i reject that says that somehow that was permitted in travel when men would travel for months or years, that they could have marriages of convenience when they're gone until they come home and then they get divorced upon return. Over and over and over. It's not that hard to believe, is it? Because even in today you see the king of Saudi Arabia that has, uh, I don't know, upwards of 100 to 200 children. Uh, He has had somewhere between 12 and 15 wives. I, I lost count But bottom bottom line is is their misogyny trivializes any respect for women, and that's going to then be exponentially exaggerated with polygamy and other things. So a lot of these things create pathology over pathology. And it's interesting to me now, if you look at the end of this article, I'll let you take a look at it, The New Yorker, but at the end, they, they interview... A number of folks with pertinent comments. Interesting comment from Rabia ben an associate professor at the University of Colorado Law School. She did not like the concept of secret marriage. She approaches her work from the Maliki perspective, one of the schools of thought of Islam. Maliki is, I believe, the predominant school of thought in Saudi Arabia one of the four schools of Sunni jurisprudence, which mandates that marriages be public. Instead, she believes that the barriers to entry and exit from marriage should be lowered. There's no reason, she said, why a couple can't say, I want to try this, I want to I want to be good with God, I don't know if you're my forever person, and I don't think I'm ready for kids yet. Her scholarship looks at how American marriages can satisfy the demands of Islamic law while conferring more rights on women, such as the right to initiate divorce more easily, and reducing the expectations of entanglement for both parties, making it optional for couples to combine their finances. It doesn't have to be with a capital M marriage. So it's interesting that mixing in modernization and equality concepts, which are good, with a diminution of the sanctity of the institution of marriage. And I guess if there's no children involved, the harm is going to be less. But at the end of the day, if marriage is truly intended, and everything in Islam as we see it theologically is related to whether God sees your intent as pure. And if your purity of intent is real, and you enter into the relationship With the pure intent that that would be for life, or doesn't it have to be? (laughs) To me, that's what marriage is: is the old, whether you're Muslim, Christian, or or whatever it might be, through sickness and in health, death do us part. Or are we saying, no, through the next few years until I get sick of you, or until maybe I find something better? Is that really respectful? Is that really equality? Is that really dignity? Or is it mutual exploitation? With a comma that, well, it's a little more moral than just casual dating. Because somehow we fulfilled God's institution. So I will tell you that, and again, call this conservative values, whatever you think it might be, that you can find whatever mechanism you want to softer land you into a situation that might be, well, a little less harmful than frivolous dating and and extramarital sex. But at the end of the day, diminishing the institution of marriage at the expense of what it does for society and the building of families and add children into this, and it changes everything doesn't it because the the institution of marriage as god tells us in the quran it says that half of your religion is gained in a marriage it doesn't mean you're not religious if you don't get married but it also means that that's a significant part of the value system of our lives and as much as many people can choose to have children or not i think one of the least selfish acts is having children and 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 devoting your life to helping sustain them and at your own expense and whatever it might be. And one of the most selfish things is deciding not to help children and leave any legacy. Certainly the legacy is part of your selfishness, but to say that somehow we live simply for the enjoyment of our current life without any deference or delaying of that gratification, even past our death for those who live beyond us, is a whole other discussion. And I think this is the bigger question. And then you go to the end of the piece. And it says, After this imam posted on Facebook about students requesting secret marriages, the New Yorker then quotes, Some of the comments praised him for refusing to perform secret nikahs. Well, that's good. Others question how practical his approach was. I'll be honest, I have a 22-year-old. This is from Dalia Mujahid, right? The author of that study I mentioned to you earlier. And if I found out he got his niqab behind my back to avoid or stop the committing of zina, zina is the sin of extramarital or premarital sex, any sex outside of marriage, an Arabic word for sexual relations that are forbidden by Islam, I'd be very grateful and relieved. Dalia Mujahid, the director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, said... She said, How is it how is helping two consenting adults avoid a serious sin not more important than the cultural norm of parents being present at the wedding? You know, it's amazing to me that the the problem is so much more complex than that. To reduce it to saying, oh, they just don't want to talk to their parents, at least they want to be good with God. It's an unbelievable weakness to not be able to confront your parents and say, listen, this is who I want for my life and you can accept it or not. If parents want to be children, and it's one thing as a parent not to approve of somebody they may meet, but it's another to then banish them as an honor type of divine. No, that's absurd. If they're adults that make a decision of who they want to marry, so be it. doesn't mean the parent has to necessarily give their stamp of approval, but also doesn't mean that you disown your child or you... Patronize them, you continue to respect them as human beings and respect the family that they're building because they will be your grandchildren, that is your son or daughter in law, whatever it might be. Yeah, I don't have to agree with the choices my children make, but I certainly need to continue to respect them as human beings. Mujahid then said, I've been like scarred by war. She was talking about raising children, not actual battles. I just have a realistic viewpoint on young people and what they're going to do and the amount of influence you can have on them. Of course she wants her two sons, she has two, to talk to her about having sex. Of course she wants them to involve her when they eventually get married. But I just think of Islam as a faith for humans, not saints nor angels, but humans. Okay, that's all well and good. But humans should be open and honest and have the courage And their parents should tell them to have the courage to talk to them openly and comfortably about the choices they make. And we tolerate each other and we accept and we believe beyond tolerance and pluralism and diversity. So if our kids decide to make choices we disagree with, we don't expect them to make it in silence, in hidden, in secrecy. Secrecy should not somehow be excused because of our social pressures and norms. And to believe that somebody like Mujahid here, who claims, and you know she speaks at Isna conferences and that, so many other leadership that these leaders are teaching others that there's a utilitarian aspect to accepting certain things as better than others. That there is somehow well the ends might justify the means here. That the ends is to be with God, so therefore the means of secrecy and lack of public. One of the reasons for the public nature of the marital vows is to prevent poly- polygamy to promiscuity and other things to make it a relationship that has public accountability so secret marriages make no sense and it 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 i think violates some of the core so what does it mean to be a religious muslim is it really about the hijab and the, the, the outer things that we put over our head or around us or the what we look like or what we do? Or is it actually what we believe and how moral we act and how honest and whether we discard corruption? All right, well, a lot to digest there. And I hope you took time this last weekend to Pray for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice in the attacks and in the wars that ensued to bring us safety against the militancy of Al-Qaeda, against the militancy of those who have threatened our security, and continue to make America a better place, a stronger place, a more diverse place, to give us the the, the blessings of being able to counter ideas like political Islam and practice our faith more freely here than we can in anywhere on the planet. So, God bless you all. God bless the United States of America. Thank you for joining me on this podcast and share it with your friends. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R, and at Reform This Radio, at Reform This Radio. God bless, and we'll see you soon on the Blaze Podcast Network.